Hello, Coach Fury podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in once again. Uh, the person on this episode is one of my major influences and biggest mentors. I, I simply wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without this cat. Um, but before I tell you who that is, I'm going to keep you in suspense. Uh, for those that don't know who I am, my name is Steve, Coach Fury Holliner. I do personal training, online training, classes, and I'm also a teacher for several organizations, including the one created by this man, Josh Hankin, uh, who's going to be the guest on episode 11. I'm super excited to have Josh on. Uh, real quickly, if you're interested in anything that I might have going on, check out coachfury.com to find out about training or any upcoming courses, some of which are going to be related to Josh, who's on here. Um, but more importantly, coming up in December, on December 1st through the 3rd, Kim and some friends, my wife and some friends, are hosting an art show that they've curated. Over 40 artists are coming out to the A-Bar in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, New York, on December 1st through the 3rd. Any money through a raffle and through the sale of the art is going to go to an animal rescue named Animal Haven, which is where we actually got our dog, Ramona Flowers. So we're raising some money for a good cause. It's going to be a fun night. We've got cool raffle gifts, uh, including... Um, Tattoo gift certificates, training with your man Fury right here, uh, gym classes, um, nutritional products, a, a vegan restaurant just threw something into the mix, acupuncture sessions, a lot of cool gifts, all the money going to a good cause. Check out bitingbacknyc.com uh, for more info on that. And if you've ever followed Josh Hankin on the social media, you're going to know that he's not going to mind waiting to hear about a fundraiser for animals um, in any way, shape, or form. For those that might not have heard of Josh, um, you've been living under a rock, but Josh is the creator of the DVRT Ultimate Sandbag Training System, which was one of the things I got into very early on, and I'm just super excited to have him on. So, Josh, please say hi to everybody. Oh, thanks for having me, Steve. I appreciate it. No, never, never uh, too much talk about the rescue animals. <laughs> you should really just follow Josh now. Maybe... 70% for the fitness, 30% for Dwight and the gang. <laughs> yeah. I think the, the dog fishers make it more worthwhile. <laughs> right. So for those that aren't aware of what DVRT as a system is, a lot of people, and this is one of the things that Josh and I and the leadership team and his wife, Jessica, talk about is there's an awareness of ultimate sandbags and sandbag training to some degree. And then there's an awareness on another degree of DVRT as a system. And it's one of the things that I took was my third course I ever took. I took it right after my RKC. And really, as somebody new transitioning from an enthusiast into a fitness professional, really had helped shape how I would coach people and, and, and assess them based on movement and not just necessarily like how heavy can we lift something. It was really an eye-opener for me, and it's clearly stuck around. What I'd like to do, because one of the things I've never actually heard Josh talk about is we've sort of heard and, I, and we say to the courses how the system came to be. But I would like to actually go way back, Josh, and just talk about that, those moments, those months, those weeks, those early years when you were like, I think I have an idea to make a product. And then having the system, actually, that the product fits into. So it's not just a sandbag, um, but you created the system and then you created the ultimate sandbag, which was you know, sadly, there's a lot of knockoffs, but at the time, incredibly, incredibly unique. And quite frankly, the way you keep progressing, it keeps it unique. And I'm hoping people will get a, you know, understand why that is by the end of this, if they don't already. But what was it like when you started to put together a system? What was your thought process on that? It was a horrible idea. Um, no, um, 
No, I, you know, I think like anything that has value, you don't actually go into it with a, the mindset of, oh, I'm going to do this. I think it's more or less comes a little bit more organically. Like basically you're just trying to solve a problem. Uh, and so for me, you know, for most of my life, I've been trying to figure out first and foremost, you know, how to train myself because uh, for those that don't know, you know, I suffered a bad little back injury when I was 14. Now being 40, that means I've spent more of my life in pain than out of pain. Uh, so, you know, first and foremost, I don't think you can really help other people until really you feel like you can help yourself. And so I always had that mission of, you know, wanting to figure out how to help myself. So I, you know, very early on got really into, you know, uh, fitness from a perspective of, you know, first and foremost, even before the back pain, you know, being an overweight kid that, you know, was the kind of lanky and awkward. Um, and then, you know, growing into my body a little bit and, and getting into fitness from the perspective of, I, you know, when I was a kid, I, I was tall for my age, so I played basketball. And then, like, when you're a little kid, like, being taller than everybody is awesome. Like, you just dominate because you're taller than everybody. And then, you know, kids catch up, and you're like, oh, crap. Now, everybody's kind of tall my height, so I got to do something else. And, uh, you know, I got into strength training through my older brother after a bad ankle injury, too. And so what I loved about strength training was the idea that, you know, if you worked hard, generally there was a payoff. Uh, whereas, you know, you just generally weren't necessarily have to be naturally the fastest. You necessarily weren't one that had to jump the highest. I didn't have those gifted athletic abilities. I often joke with people, my family genetics is like, it's easier to jump over my family than it is to go around them. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, we weren't from a, a family of blessed, you know, athletic individuals. So strength training was just one of those natural things. And so to come around to what started happening is, you know, when I was 16, I got into, my first uh, workshop, I think it was an NASM or ACSM workshop. And I was definitely overwhelmed because I didn't have a background. I was 16 years old, but I knew I like, I wanted to do this, this fitness thing more, more, more or less. It was like strength conditioning because I'd met in high school, a coach uh, at the time who was a assistant strength coach for Chicago White Sox. And I knew I wanted to be part of athletics. I knew early on, I wasn't going to be a pro athlete. Like again, looking at family genes, figured that out pretty fast, pretty <laughs> early on. Um, but I'm like, oh, I didn't know, like, I didn't know there was this thing called strength and conditioning. Like what a cool thing to do. Like you can work with athletes and you work in a weight room, you make them stronger, like kind of cool gig. Um, and so that was my first introduction. I was just overwhelmed. And so just like, oh, I didn't know there was a whole philosophy. I thought you just worked out. I thought you just went to the gym and you just worked out and you know, you got the muscle magazines and you just, you know, you trained biceps, you did chest days and things like that. Uh, so that was my first, like, you know, introduction to education, even though I wasn't prepared for really absorbing anything from it, I was like, oh, there's a world of education with this. And so uh, when I went to college, you know, the sort of the same thing followed. And, you know, I was so, when I get into something, I'm kind of OCD and like, I want to know everything about it. So while I was going to school for kinesiology, I still started reading stuff that was happening in the industry. I'm like, oh, there's a disconnect between what we're being taught in school and what's happening in the industry. So I actually spent, started like doing internships with strength coaches in the at, uh, at the time I was still in the university. And it was challenging because a lot of the stuff in the university was very outdated. It was still very much based on aerobic science, and, and, you, know, you know, like cardiorespiratory stuff. And mm -hmm. the strength training science was still very far behind uh, what was actually being performed. But that was also the time I had suffered the, uh, a relapse in my little back. So I was the kid sitting there in the classroom. I, I could barely sit in a chair because I was in so much pain and I was frustrated by lots of things and I wanted to strength train. So I got introduced to corrective exercise. And I you know, so when I'm 20 years old, uh, yes, I'm going to date myself as like the late 90s or mid 90s. 
um, got introduced to corrective exercise. I'm like, oh, I knew there was rehab. Like I knew there was physical therapy, but I didn't know there was corrective exercise. Like I didn't know what that was. And I started getting to people like Paul Check, and I'm like, oh, this is the answer. Okay, this is the thing. Because what I didn't know at the time, and that sort of now I appreciate more being old, um, is I was looking like most people for the answer. I wanted to be told, what should I be doing? And so I kept going to these different programs wanting to know, what should I be doing? And then when it didn't work or didn't pan out exactly like I wanted or didn't give me the result I wanted, I'm like, oh, this doesn't work. There's got to be a different – someone else has the answer. And so I would I'd find myself going to a lot of different programs. The, the positive part of that was I was exposed to so much very early on. And so I started to develop a filter early on too. And, and, and I probably wouldn't appreciate it until later on. Uh, as, a, as a client of mine you know, used to say, there's two things that are wasted on the young, health and education. Um, <laughs> you don't appreciate it at the time uh and so but those experiences that helped me shape it started i didn't know at the time a philosophy that i started had i started looking at things i'm like oh wait it's not that this doesn't work at all it's that you know maybe this piece of that works and this works here and i started to understand the role of context so as i had my own gym after i went to college i had the brilliant idea like open up your own gym because everyone said that was a great idea that was awesome no it was a horrible idea um it was too young you know, I didn't understand the business. I thought just if you were a great trainer, then you'd make lots of money. I thought like a lot of people at the time, this is again, early 2000s, uh, you know, all you needed to do to make a lot of money was to be a great trainer and not like actually, you know, know how to run a business market or any of the things that real business people actually do. Uh, so I learned that lesson early on. And so I started to do, uh, one of the major mistakes I did is I made the gym for me and not my clients. And so as I started being exposed to more people to work with, I started understanding really the value of having a philosophy and a system uh, rather than having exercises and just tools and, you know, techniques. And because a lot of times if you just had these exercises, uh, they could be a great exercise, but if it didn't work for that person, what'd you do? Uh, and so at, you know, the, as I started going on and on and I went through these different programs, I started understanding that it wasn't about finding the perfect tool. It wasn't finding the perfect exercise. It was about how do you organize these into a, a system and looking at more of a broad scope, you know, looking outside of fitness, how anything good in life, whether it's business and relationships and family dynamics and the, even things like the military all have systems in place to be successful. And for some whatever reason in exercise, like we just think of it as, literally exercise you just do stuff it's so and you true. do enough stuff until you find something that works and works as i'm putting up you can't see me in quotation marks <laughs> um you know for whatever period of time for whom it is there's a lot context plays a very big role so you know about 10 years into my career because i'm not a fast learner you know i decided like i i'm like oh my god this the system thing is really what the industry needs so i'm like why isn't anyone talking about systems and, and having a philosophy of systems rather than just accumulation of exercises and tools? And so, you know, at first when I decided I want to do this, I told, you know, my wife at the time, like, I, I'm like, the last thing the industry needs are more certifications. So I know we're going to be met with, oh, no, not another certification. So I knew we had to be significantly different. And I knew having this angle of, you know, not, I'm not going to teach you how to use a tool. I'm going to teach you how to think as a coach to develop, you know, systems to help people move and perform better was going to be, you know, something we were going to strive for, but I also knew it was going to be met with, you know, skepticism and also 
you know, people not sure what that meant because it was such a new concept for people. And, you know, as we all know, people generally don't do better with new ideas at first when they're first exposed to them. They usually revoke them or, you know, criticize them and do anything but sort of like invite them. So I knew it was going to be a challenge, but I thought if we can get, you know, some, some uh, you know, initial people going through it and saying like, wow, like this is actually making a difference, then I knew we had something to keep track with because I knew the 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 journey was going to be a, a challenging one. There was going to be lots of times that we were like going to question ourselves. So we had to believe that what we were doing was going to actually really benefit people in the industry. So that was my long-winded answer to it. No, it, it, it's, it helps. It, it's awesome. There's, there's a, 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 a few key things there that I, I like to unpack a little bit. And it's, it's this idea of having a philosophy and a system and versus just having exercises. And, you know, for those listening, like it, this is something we talk about in, in DVRT land when, you know, the main implement for purpose, like is the ultimate sandbag, but it's not the only thing that we talk about in the context of training people in DVRT. If you watch Josh's or my videos or James's, we use other things. Um, is that moment when having the awareness to go through education courses and to allow yourself to, in a, in a in an educated way, filter out. Because I think sometimes there's actually, we look through the course we've gone through and we filter out the things that maybe don't align with us or we try them and they don't work as well, you know, certain aspects. But then I think a lot of people go through a course and they like one or two things randomly stick. It felt good that day. That seems cool, whatever it might be. And that becomes like basically all they take from that. And then they go to another course pretty quickly and like one or two things stick from that. And it doesn't become as cohesive a philosophy. It becomes more of like uh, we are just throwing things in a pot versus creating like a, you know, a meal out of it, uh, an actual system, a plan. And it's sort of like I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, but not for 10 years as, as this sort of developed. I also know I've been with the program long enough now that to see how it's grown and developed, can continue to develop through the time on it. Um, when you started... The, the apprehension of trying to put on a course, uh, what was it like just even trying to set that up and draw people in on those first ones? Did you hit up friends out of the gate? Like what was sort of the, the strategy to just sort of get that snowball starting to run down the hill, roll well, down the hill? Snowball for better or for worse, yeah. Well, depending what hill you're on. Um, it, you know, I, for, what, for better or for worse, I had been writing online for about, eight years at that point so there was a there was definitely some people that had some awareness of what i was doing and you know it's just like training you look back at what you're writing then and you're like oh my god i can't believe i was writing that but it was what you knew best then and you thought was really good um so we actually had someone reach out to us and and be like hey i want to host you have you ever thought about doing a program i thought i said well we thought about it, but we never had formally, you know, put something together. And he's like, and, and ironically happened to be in Sweden. I'm like, okay, you know, <laughs> let's do our first one in Sweden. Why not? It's the way we roll. Um, and, and, you know, my apprehension all the time is giving people a, a, a really a, a, a experience that changes them. Like you said, I really, you know, if people go to our program, they're like, oh, that was good. Like, to me, that's like bad. Uh, that means I didn't really reach you like I wanted to reach you. You can still think it's positive and you can still say, oh, I got some good things out there, but I didn't communicate what I really wanted you to take home at the end of the day, which is I want you to think differently. And I want you to have, you know, sort of shape, you know, what and how you're thinking about things in a certain way. I'm not, 
And it's something I heard a radio host that I listen to all the time say is I'm not asking you or I'm not telling you what to think. I'm asking you, do you want to think? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's a big difference for people because again, a lot of times I think in fitness, we're so overwhelmed and it's a, it's an unusual industry because it's an industry that doesn't necessarily require a, a very extensive background that people go in there and they're kind of overwhelmed with all the information out there. So they just want someone to tell them the right answer. Uh, and, you know, one thing we were, you know, very emphatic about is like the right answer really is this big, great area that makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. So we're going to try to tell you the best answer we can. And we want you to really not take away an exercise and we don't want you to take away a workout. We want you to take away a, a way of thinking. And so, you know, that I knew is kind of a challenge. But even to this day, Jessica will call me up after a program and go, how did it go? And I'll be like, oh, it went okay. And she'll be like, well, why do you think that? It's not because someone didn't nail an exercise well or they didn't like get the technique down. It's because I didn't feel like maybe they, my sense was they walked away with really understanding the bigger concept I want them to go home with about understanding how this all fits together in a bigger picture. It's interesting. One of the things that really I loved about the system going through, and again, this is really in the beginning as a complete novice. Um, you know, I was very, very new to wanting to be a trainer. I'd only found uh, Ultimate Sandbags, I think, in February of the same year. And I, we went through that course in like late October. So, you know, I, I wasn't with it very long, but there's with whatever else you do, there's a freedom within the system that you've set up enough of uh, sort of guidelines and checkpoints that there's a lot of freedom within it to improvise that makes in a way that makes sense as opposed to being random. And I think a lot of dogma and pride around sets of initials and stuff sometimes is so strong because those guidelines are way more rigid. It doesn't allow for a lot of other things to be thought of. Like this is, it's very strict sometimes like this is this, right? Like I'll say, for example, I remember in one of the kettlebell groups, there was this uh, very long Facebook thread and an instructor group about um, coming from double snatches, double kettlebell snatches, um, in back, bringing them back down into the rack position versus letting them go all the way between the hips for the next rep. And I was just like, are we really going to be this rigid on this minutia that could quite frankly be done both ways, but because someone took it assert this way and someone took it assert that way, it became this hard line thing. And in DVRT, we have reasons for everything. And I think a good system provides why, even if it might not be something that's directly in the manual. No, and I think, you know, that's where our personality gets interjected into the program. You know, I, you know, I come from a family of teachers, you know, most in one form or another, a lot of people uh, in our family have been teachers, whether it's in, in university settings or grade school or, you know, whatever it is. And so, you know, a good teacher, the goal of a teacher is not to tell you facts and figures and make you just memorize things. It's to, have, to help you understand how to think and to, and to set, develop your own filter system. And, you know, someone always said, you know, the real purpose of college is not to give you facts. It's, it's to teach you how to think. Uh, and, and so that, that's hard for people because, again, like it, fitness is kind of an, a very young industry. And, you know, I was thinking about the other day, like, you know, think about the first like celebrity in fitness was an actress, Jane Fonda, right? Like yeah. it wasn't this person with a PhD in kinesiology and biomechanics. It's an actress. Uh, you know, I, I made a presentation at the NSCA a couple of years ago where like the American Beautician Society was formed in like 1936. The NSCA was formed in 1978. Like <laughs> it's a very young industry. 
And I think by that, people are just looking like we don't know how to think because we also have this great gap between the academic side of it and the practical world. Uh, and, and so I think that really gets people into this, like, just tell me what to do. Just tell, excuse me, just tell me what to do. And, and so they do get caught up in the minutia and they're not taught how to think in a lot of these educational programs. And I know even a lot of people at ours, I remember, uh, you know, when I went to South Korea and, and, and there's a very big kettlebell community there and uh, our instructor Raymond, you know, the first time I went out there, he was like, I'm like, Oh, how do you think it went? He's like, Oh, well, it was, it was okay. I'm like, well, okay. I'm always open to like improving, but what yeah. did you not, or did you think they did not like? He goes, you just weren't military enough for them. And, you know, and, and a little bit, you have to understand culturally, like they do have this like mandatory military service and the culturally they are very, you know, black and white at times, but I, but it was also that influence of that Calva community you talked about. And I'm like, that's not my goal. My goal is not to tell you what to think. It's just to teach you how to think. And so it, it, it can definitely throw people for a loop and it almost sort of disenchants them. They're like, well, fine, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to go somewhere else because someone will tell me what to think. <laughs> uh, and, and that to me, like, I, I, I've come to terms with being okay that we're not for everyone. Um, and I don't think we can make an impact upon people like I want to if we do follow that course. Uh, I would agree with that. It's funny on uh, on the second episode of this pod uh, podcast, Todd Bumgarner from Strength Faction said basically the same exact thing. He went and got his you know master's degree, but you know college isn't turning out people to actually become critical thinkers. So it becomes really easy to some people when when, when I've been when I've taught DVRT or any of the courses, uh, DVRT tends to be a little bit more open thinking. Um, I don't mean that a negative on the other ones. Um, it's just so many things can be applied within it is that people really want to be told what to do quite often because it simplifies their life. Um, and the thing that I kind of try to keep stressing is like everyone should have a why behind what they're doing. You know, we talk in coaching land about, you know, start with why in terms of relating with our, the people we're training, but it's also like in terms of exercise selection and our programming, really, why is it there versus just linking random things together? And, you know, DVRT, I think at first is, looks can, can look very complex but once you get a grasp of, about it it actually becomes very simple and i think people aren't used to having something complex that they have to wrap their heads around that deeply out the gate um at least when it comes to more of a you know a non corrective or pt restoration type thing right those can get overly complex as well but in just in terms of how we're looking at movement because also in dvrt land it is such a, a step to the side in terms of uh for those that aren't fully aware we're looking at movement in like a full 360 degree plane of motion thing so it's not just um swinging kettlebells or or deadlifting barbells we're, we're going to be moving and progressing in a logical systemized way throughout all sorts of movement and getting stronger in those in those ranges um is it's kind of like it, it equates to me sometimes with people with meal plans, right? Like some people, most people are going to benefit from just learning better nutritional habits and then making their own choices. But how many people just want to be told exactly what to eat, exactly when to eat it? And I think it's a, that's not sustainable. And I think as a coach, you're going to get pretty stagnant on that as well. If you just try to like lock into a, a, a simplified system just take that as the rule and not question it and continue to sort of try to progress your business. But from like a sort of stagnant point of view, I mean, one of the great things that I love about uh, working with you guys and the other leaderships is, you know, if we use the clean and push press test for an example, like 
we've been very vocal about the, what we thought were pros and cons in the development of that and having that flexibility where, and I think a lot of organizations and a lot of people who go through the organizations are sometimes more, more strict because they've paid money and trained towards it is that, you know, sometimes we have to be able to question from the top to the bottom, some of these things. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to get across? Yeah. And I, and I think it really starts with a, like, you know, we're asking a lot from people because, you know, if you look at the majority of programs out there, and I'm not criticizing anyone in particular or saying that they're necessarily bad, but if you go into a course, generally you're expecting to learn exercises. Yeah. Uh, teach me these exercises. And what we're trying to do is, yes, we're going to obviously teach you many exercises, but more importantly, we're going to teach you principles and concepts. And while some people you know, can say the same thing, I think what makes us kind of unique is, and this is where kind of I think people misunderstand me on, on social media and they take it as sort of a, a dick move, but I'm actually just trying to understand them better, which is I keep asking them the question. For example, I'm just going to throw this out randomly, like, oh, I train movement. And I'd be like, okay, what does that mean? Well, we train movement patterns. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we squat hip hinge and, you know, okay, what does that mean? Well, Monday we deadlift and Wednesday we back squat and, and Friday we power clean. Okay, but those, those are just exercises. Like, what, what are you trying to accomplish? I'm trying to get to the deeper meaning of what they're actually trying to achieve by using those principles and concepts. And so one of the things that we get, I get really frustrated about personally is there's lots of sound bites out there in the industry that people can regurgitate these sound bites. They're rather meaningless when you break down what they're actually yeah saying but but they're getting you know cheered on they're getting shared and i'm like oh but what does that mean how does that impact what you're doing in your program or how you're coaching or how you're communicating with someone and oftentimes it's just well you're you're a dick you know (laughs) it turns into unfortunately um (laughs) and and, you know go go surprise it's social media but i think you know one of the goals i had is like this, this the goal of our program wasn't to make josh a superstar is like i want to almost develop a school for coaches because I know as a coach coming up what I didn't get taught. So how could we make coaches more successful? How can we get them prepared to actually work for people? What are the skills they need to know in both technique, programming, communicating to their clients that allows them to actually make it because this industry is a very hard one to actually succeed in. And I was talking to a friend the other day trying to explain them this industry. And I'm like, there's not a lot of people you see that retire as a fitness professional. There's yeah. a lot of people that leave the industry. There's not a lot of people that retire. There's not a lot of 40, 50-year-old fitness professionals. And there's a reason for that. It's a tough industry. Good. So, so I'm in the rare air right it, now. So <laughs> you're in the rare air. I'm halfway to 50 now. <laughs> See? You'll be the, you'll be, you'll be the, you know, the mystery. You'll be the Koopa Chaba. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, just like a lot of it is it's like people just don't, we're not prepared. We're just, oh, we get, we get our first, I remember my, first, my very first client. I'm like, Oh crap. I, um, I'll do with you what, what I do. You know, I was 18 years old at the time, but I feel like that's what a lot of people end up doing. And some people do a little bit higher grade than that. But our goal is like, could we actually equip you to feel like a true professional that someone came to you, you could break down what they needed, communicate to them why it's going to be helpful, walk them through a process and actually get them to a specific goal in a effective and fun experience. Yeah, they, yeah, I'm going to be honest, you know, we're joking about age a little bit. So turning 45 this year and definitely uh, as I hit my 40s, I've just my, my goals have changed where I definitely train people like, hey, I love ultimate sandbags. I love kettlebells. I love barbell. You know, I have a system behind it, but really 
pushing almost everybody to sort of fit those. Now, mind you, I had a good broader base and understanding out the gate, but you know, I know personally, I chased heavy a lot and it felt great. And now I don't always feel great when I do that. And, and I'm seeing how I'm changing my programming and not just when I, when I do something for myself, but with others that it's really about meeting the agenda of the person and not our own agenda on the person. And that's a hard separation to make sometimes. Yeah, I know. I had a, I tell the story. I had a, a, a fitness pro that I know. And he had owned a gym probably, I want to say a decade. And he, he had, I know he had moved and he started up a new gym. And he instant messaged me and it's like, oh, Josh, I want to ask you a question. I'm like, okay. He goes, uh, I guess he had a gym now that mostly had very over, overweight women. You know, they had unfortunately very large stomachs and, and let's just call it how it is. You get bigger chest with that as a woman uh, a lot of times and sometimes guys too. And he said, Hey, you know, the ultimate sandbag was easier for his clients to deadlift because if he tried to deadlift a cowboy with them, just the nature of putting their hands closer together, their body got in their way. And yeah. I'm like, okay. He goes, well, is that okay? I go, well, you, you obviously identified a problem and found a solution. So why are you asking me, is it okay? He goes, well, I don't want, I won't say the organization, but you know, I don't want my instructors in this organization to think badly of me. I go, and I said to him, I said, you don't have to justify anything to me or them. You have to justify it to the clients. You should be doing what's best for the clients. So I think we've gotten this weird medium where we're trying to please mentors and gurus and people you know that we look up to rather than forgetting the person that only matters is the person that's paying us the money and trusting us with giving them the best path to their meet their goal so i do think a lot of people get caught up into you know wanting to either prove things to people or you know uh, prove it to themselves maybe it is or and they just lose sight of the very simple fact of your responsibility is to that person that you're working with and that person alone. Yeah. You posted about this for, um, for the leadership team recently. And it's something that I I've been dealing with a lot lately is, you know, where are we as for the, for, for most trainers, you know, there's a lot of us that teach courses and a lot of us with aspiration to teaching courses. And uh, it's a super fun thing to do. But when a lot of us are on social media, all of our targeted stuff seems to be at, other trainers, whether or not we're actually currently teaching workshops or not, right? So it's a little different if, you know, I'm very fortunate to be in, in, you know, to be able to teach for you and teach workshops. So a lot of my base will be trainer-based. And so if I do something educational about that, um, it'll be targeted at them to a degree, but I also try to simplify so that if I have a friend that's an enthusiast in DVRT, that it'll, it'll make sense for them, you know, and occasionally it's directed totally at trainers. Like, um, but I think a lot of us forget who our avatar is, who are we speaking to? Um, you know, I think you listed as who's your hero when you're doing your social media people, are you trying to get trainers to come and train with you? Or are you trying to get trainers just to respect you? And what is the goal of the trainer? Is it to have other trainers respect you? I mean, that's certainly awesome. And if you're going to teach courses one day or, you know, uh, try to launch a system or a program, like that's fantastic. Um, but in terms of like running a gym, um, running in, you know, some sort of an online coaching business, like you're going to need people that aren't trainers, um, to sign up. So I think that's something that's been an interesting thing where I think in the earlier days of fitness blogging, it was like, it almost felt like it was almost all for fitness people. 
And now in social media, I think it's lost where it's probably way too much aimed at fitness people as opposed to trying to make new people believers, right? Because that's ultimately what it is, is we want to try to help motivate and make people believers and train with us. And it's really interesting seeing that happen because now also if it, it almost seems like if I make enough posts aimed at trainers, then, then, then I must be ready to like, you know, I don't need to coach many people anymore. I can just go online now because I have trainers that follow me. There's this like weird sense of where we're at that comes very quickly through social media that is sometimes misguided versus working with people in the room for extended periods of time. I don't mean more than hours. I mean like, you know, years and building up that way. And again, I think that we can bring that all the way back to the systems where like, well, I'm an instructor in this now. So this is what we do. And it shouldn't really be like a complete takeover of your philosophy. Like if I were to come through DVRT now, having not taken it, I wouldn't hope, I would hope that it wouldn't completely erase all of my other stuff. And it doesn't, what it should do is make it better, you know, bolster some things, maybe make you rethink some other things. But I think people come in for a course (laughs) and they want that one answer. And it's really easy to like throw other stuff out. Yeah, and I and for us, we've had this internal dialogue lots of times, and I know you've been a part of it too. Is and I don't blame people for it. It's hard in this industry to navigate. You know, when you, when you're trying to discern what something is from the outside, and you look at what we do, you're going, "Oh, that's the ultimate sandbag crew." And okay, I'm going to learn ultimate sandbags when I come to DVRT. And yes, you are going to learn to use our ultimate sandbag. But one of the reasons we developed DVRT as a system was to get people well it was a couple of reasons one it was that people it, it was this discussion i was having with people that was really frustrating to me where i go people would be like oh i love sandbags i'm like oh what do you love about them they're really unstable oh do you use them well not really why not i don't know what to do with them well <laughs> that's a really confusing conversation uh or or they would be like oh you know i, I love sandbags i oh, yeah, what are you doing with them and they, and they would be like oh you know i pull my back i squat them blah 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 and so what ended up happening over time as we con- continue to grow is, pe- and I learned is, that, and I don't mean to sound this very self-serving, is that it's very similar to the road the cowbells went through, but people didn't love sandbags because sandbags had been around for a very long time, as the internet likes to remind me. Um, we didn't create <laughs> them, but people, but people weren't using them. Well, okay, what I found, ended up finding out is people liked what we were doing with them. And so there wasn't a universal sandbag method that people adhered to uh as you well know like we fight to this day that people use really bad technique uh with the sandbag whether it's ours or not and we can talk about the differences but there isn't this standard where you know for example if julian michaels does a sandbag exercise badly on on facebook and it gets posted on facebook you're not gonna have the uproar that that the kettlebell swing had because there's sort of this accepted standard to a kettlebell swing that most fitness professionals have. And, and why I bring that up is because if you can't get past the implement first and foremost, you can't get to what we're saying. And to what you're talking about, the whole social media route is like people a lot of times can't hear what I'm saying because they get so fixated on the implement. And that's unfortunate because, you know, the reason that we're using the ultimate sandbag and, and as you mentioned, like, so there's times that we don't is I'm going to use the best tool for the job that I'm trying to use it for. And the analogy I often give, give as you've heard, is, you know, if I try to use a saw for the job of a hammer, I'm not going to get very far. And I think one of the big disservices we've done as an industry is we've sold people on this idea that a tool is just a tool. 
And just by the analogy I just used, we know that's not true. There's no other industry that approaches their tools in the same light. Like I, you were in graphic, graphic design before, right? I'm yeah. sure you were very particular about the tools that you used. Uh, you know, I sort of take it to the extreme where can you can imagine if you're in heart surgery and your doctor said, give me a scalpel or a clamp, it really doesn't matter. Like, I mean, there, there's no other industry that devalues itself, but that's because people aren't confident in what they're trying to accomplish with these tools. They don't see and how they're unique. And they can't hear the messages behind them because they get so fixated on what it is. And where that parlays into the whole social media side is that, again, people come in and they interject their own beliefs. Like, you know, how many times have you seen people hijack a post, uh, yeah. you know, whether deliberately or not? Like, one thing I learned a long time ago was, like, people are reading your post through their own lenses. And they may completely miss what you're saying because they're reading it with their biases and they're reading it through, you know, their experiences and they have their own perception of what you're saying. They can completely miss the ball, what you're saying completely because of those things. So I try to have people understand, like, who are you really speaking to and who are you trying to work with? Uh, and there was a video floating around some time ago. Aaron was rah, rah, like this small training facility had made this really nice promo video. It looked really professionally done. It was really cool. And of course, I had to be the Debbie Downer. I was like, well, who is this for? It looks like it's made for trainers because all the trainers were sharing it. And they're like, and people pause and they're like, kind of like Josh, you're a dick again. Like, <laughs> it's a really cool video, but like it did. But if it was, it wasn't made for the clientele, it didn't speak to the client, spoke to other fitness professionals. And they sort of missed the whole boat of like, I think the purpose of what they did. It was a very nice video, but I think they forgot who they were speaking to. Um, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, the big difference is that you should be able to speak to both very easily. And, you know, I think you heard me say recently, like a good teacher knows how to make complex ideas simple. And yeah. I think, unfortunately, what happens in social media land is that you get people that write these really complex ideas in really big words and people don't understand them and people assume they know what they're talking about. And people with some education look and go, you're kind of full of it, man. But you're, getting, you're passing people off because you're trying to use these big words that you don't even really understand or that you actually just made up. I don't think that's really a word. Uh, and, but, I mean, you can't go – I mean, and there's a battle you don't want to really get into. But my point is, you know, following people – if you're following someone good, if they can make things always understandable, if they can make it so that they could relate it to a fitness professional, but they can also relate it to their neighbor or their mom. I always tell people at our courses, if you can't explain this to your mom why it works and why it's beneficial, then you don't really understand it. And that's really what we should be striving for when we communicate because if you can't get buy-in from people, you're not going to get success with them either. Yeah, it's interesting. I once worked with a with a, an instructor who, you know, was an excellent instructor. Like I, he had just enough skill in speaking very technically, but I could still understand it. But in a discussion, the, the goal was that to talking to one of the, you know, the top 2% intellectual in the room. And for me, if you're going for the top 2%, that really leaves the 98% out there kind of in the dark. And that's not a successful approach for me. And, and I'm very fortunate that I don't have, a, I think for me, what's worked out for me is A, I was very fortunate to find Five Points Academy, um, you know, to introduce me to Kettlebells and certainly Gavin Van Vlack, fellow DBRT Master Instructor, being there to introduce me to your work and the Ultimate Sandbags. But that I wasn't overly smart coming into it, right? Like I didn't have to prove my education level with anything. I just had to sort of get proficient within the systems and the things that I was studying. And luckily it was all like pure passion at that point because I was only taking courses on stuff that I'm into. 
Whereas for a lot of us now, when I see people showing up for workshops, especially, you know, people that go to like, you know, 15, 20, 30 things a year is, is, is where's the drive coming from? Is it purely about education or is it to be able to say, I've gone to this many certifications and courses this year? And that's a hard line. Why do you think, if we go back to what you said earlier, uh, not that far ago, about, you know, people losing, having a hard time getting beyond the tool. What do you think it is as a coach that gets us caught looking at the tool and having a trouble breaking away? Because that does seem to be like a baseline element of fitness that we're looking at. This is like a sandbag thing, or this is a TRX thing, or this is a kettlebell thing. And that's certainly, folks, like clearly we target courses at, at certain things. But I mean, sometimes really it is like, here's how to pick up a glass of water or something. Where do you think that initial thought process came stems well, I, from? I think uh, it goes back to something we were talking about earlier, which is people want to be told what to think. So sure. what I mean by that, let me take a small tangent with that. How many times has this happened to you, Steve? I'm sure it's happened to you where, you know, someone asks you something and you go, well, why do you think that? And they go, well, so-and-so told me that. That's not an answer. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't show me you understand something. That just shows me that you respect that person enough to take whatever they say as gospel. And why that's a problem is like, you should never say, your answer shouldn't be, well, it's because Josh said it, because Steve said it. You should be able to explain to me why you think it works or does not work in a way that we can communicate and you know discuss uh, principles, concepts, what, what's not working here? Why do you think it's not working versus, well, so-and-so said this works. Uh, I remember my good friend Troy Anderson had posted a, a different way of doing a get-up and like, he was getting hammered. Uh, but the discussion was, well, I'm going to go see, I, I got to go ask what so-and-so thinks about this first, and then I'll get back to you. Like, <laughs> yep. so, uh, so what I'm saying by that is I think people at first, when they see something that doesn't fit within their existing system, they need approval. They need approval from the people they already look up to. Tell me this, this is okay to do. If they don't get that approval, they instantly go cynical. Uh, <laughs> because they already have this, they have their comfort zone. They have like their safe spot. Now you're challenging their safe spot. I mean, I'll be very honest when we, uh, you know, you very well know, like we had an opportunity to work with Dragonor and, you know, I had a big issue with how our book was released that we did with Dragonor. It was a beautiful book. They did a wonderful job with it, but it was just sort of released like, here's our book. And I think when having a lot of the Kelbel communities for years, they were being told like this tool does everything. This tool is fantastic. And Kelbels are like, that's the tool. Like I use Kelbels a lot today. But all of a sudden, you got dropped into this other tool, and you're like, but you need this too. And they're like, everyone goes, whoa, 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 what's, why, why do I need this? What, you just spent years telling me this did everything, and now I have this thing. Uh, so I think there's that cynicism. Or if you're an Olympic weightlifter, you have your own personal biases, like Olympic lifting does everything. I don't need this TRX or this ultimate salmon. I, you know, if you just, if you train hard. So I think it becomes part of that. People, it's challenging their belief system and existing system. I think another part of it is that because this is an industry that's very challenging, we've seen, we, we saw this weird, you know, this is the interesting part of being around this for 20 years. We saw this like ride, right? It is, I don't want to say it's a curve where, you know, there was a standard piece of equipment you always thought you had in your gym, right? You had your barbells, you had your squat rack, you had your dumbbells and maybe some mess balls and blah, blah, right? And then we saw this influx of this other equipment. And so people started spending way more money. And so I would say like 2005 to like 2000, maybe 13 or so people, we were like all of us, like I did. We spent like, we bought everything, everything that came out, we bought. And I think there had not been this big 
credit card debt a lot of times where people and people got burned out and they weren't making money in their business to justify the extra expense. It didn't make their business better. They just had more stuff. Yeah. And so, and now we've gotten to the cycle where people are burned out. Like they're, they're mentally burned out. They're financially burned out. So when they see something they're like, shit, do I really need that too? Are you telling me? And they, they almost go into defense first because they know that's putting a dent towards their finances and they don't have the belief that this new piece of equipment is going to make their business any better, but they just sort of feel like guilted into doing it because they don't want to also miss out. So I think that plays a role. And then I think the final part of it is the sandbag is this really unique thing because I did it myself. My very first sandbag was an army duffel bag. I duct taped the garbage bags with. So I think in people's heads, it's hard to pay for something they think they can make on their own. They can't yeah. make our bag. Like we've ended near this thing for over a decade you're not making this thing but i think in the back of people's minds they think they could and so you know you don't look at a kettlebell and go i can make this i can go make a barbell even though you probably could that's not in their thought process so when you believe you could make something i think it lowers the perceived value so i think people don't think it's very sophisticated uh, and on where you see it came from but again you know like i always say if that worked like you know the best example i give and you've work with me on these projects like the military has access to duffel bags they have plenty of duffel bags if it was really good they wouldn't be buying our stuff and bringing us in to train them on their on our system like yeah. they're buying our ultimate sandbags and using our system because it's so much better it's not a duffel bag so there's all these different variables that play a role and i think that's where people get stuck with the obstacle but i think it largely goes back to being accepted by the community they're existing in i mean you read the book tribes Um, you know, people have now, I I didn't know this at the time, like people started associating their tribes with equipment or organizations. And now like you're challenging, like they think that this is the best tribe there is. And now you're telling them they don't have everything. I think that's very hard for people to accept. Well, well, there's, there's safety in the tribe, right? That's part of the benefit of the tribe. We're, we're safe in it. Uh, two things going off of what you said, um, in terms of that validation, it's interesting. I just shot a video for strength faction today. I play this, you know, I'm sure you've get, we I've seen you receive these types of things with, you know, within the DVRT ultimate sandbag world. And I'm sure you got them as kettlebells as I do. It's like people will either add a course or they'll send me a video of like some potentially wacky looking thing or uh, a movement or exercise with a kettlebell or a sandbag. And then they'll, you know, be like, Hey, is this really, you know, is this safe? What do you think of this? Or they'll tag me on it. You know, what do you think of this type of swing? And I'm like, you know, I, I literally, what, what I've come down to is this, I play a game that I like to call, is this a thing, right? So, <laughs> and is this a thing? You have to look at what are they doing from a level of safety first, in my opinion, right? Is this safe across the board? Is this safe for a beginner, an intermediate or an advanced person, right? Whether it's a, whatever implement this might be everybody, right? So first there's safety involved, right? And then what level of safety, like how does it get safer with experience? It's become appropriate with experience. And the next thing is, is, why? What is its purpose? What does this do? Now, is it just a random thing to make you work harder because it looks more complex? Maybe it looks a little cooler. Um, in kettlebell land, you'll start to see th- some things that are like very overly complex sometimes that probably, if they actually do serve a purpose, are probably on the higher end experience level. DVRT, sometimes it almost works against us where we can have some things that are just like super complex, but they actually make total sense because of the progression of the system, right? So if we as a coach, as coaches can look at a safety aspect and then a benefit to the person, like a purposeful benefit to the person we're training, then you can decide whether or not is this a thing versus 
if you just told me, like if Josh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying something just says, nope, that's not a thing, right? Uh, I go to a kettlebell cert and somebody just says, nope, that's not in our manual. It's not a thing. We have to develop that thought capability going right back to critical thinking of making those decisions for our own sometimes. And, you know, the, the, the hard part of that sometimes is, is, is I've said earlier, and you know, I put this in a slide of presentation is how to not be a dick about it when it's clearly not a thing sometimes. Um, especially, you know, the social media aspect, if this is really rough, because sometimes it's people joking around and sometimes it's people trying to like really show something that they think is a thing that the vast majority of us, probably 90.9% of us will say is not a thing. Uh, and that's a really weird world we live in. But if it helps with anybody is play the game of, is this a thing in your programming? Is this safe for the person? Does it serve a purpose for the person versus it's something you saw, something you were taught, something you think just might flat out be cool. And that actually simplifies your life having that process. Um, the other thing I want to say is this, in terms of videos being for trainers versus clients, I would suggest everyone, if you have a, if you're not offended easily and have a very good sense of humor, check out how Mark Fisher Fitness does their videos. Um, trainers love them, but they are aimed at their ninjas. They're aimed at their audience and it's just the way to make things happen. Um, you can serve both masters in that way and all too often that's lost. Yeah, no, I know. I laughed at what you just said because I can't tell you how many times, you know, at night I'm on social media and I show Jessica something and go, that's not a thing. <laughs> you know? uh, uh, yeah, it, it's I actually that exact verbiage, uh, and whether it's the way someone's trying to explain something or it's what they're showing, and and, and you can go down a rabbit hole because I mean, to what you're to what you're saying, like this is the frustration I get, and I walk, I try to walk people through this process, and they, again, they think I'm being a dick, but I'm I'm trying to gain an understanding of what you're actually trying to do. So, because I mean, it, again, like being from teachers, like a teacher, a good teacher will ask you, what are you trying to do? Why? Why? They'll check in the why. They'll walk you down that path until they f figure out, like, they think that you really gave a good understanding of what you're saying. So, like, I'll give you an example. Let's say, let's go cowboy land. Let's leave, you know, Ultimate Samex for a second. And they're like, here's a get-up variation. And I'll be like, why are you doing that? Shoulder stability. Well, how is it different shoulder stability than what we were already doing? And how is it giving me better shoulder stability than what I could do? And what's the risk reward? Could I get the same shoulder stability doing something safer or less complex and so forth? And when you take people down that path, they get all agitated because I think, and, and you and I, you've heard me say this to our leadership is you don't have to necessarily create something new to be innovative. Mm -hmm. And that can confuse people. It could be you know, being innovative can be, you know, the quote I've used a lot, you've heard it with Steve Jobs, is just connecting the dots. So maybe it's the way you communicate, you know, a couple of cues for people to make them understand how to make the movement more efficient. Maybe it's a progression, you know, how, how did you do this layer, another little progression that made it feel brand new, or how did you put it in a context that gives it more value to people? Now they see it as something more important, and now it feels new again. I think when, you know, this industry is, again, really bad about going, there's nothing new. I'm like, could you imagine if there was nothing new in this industry, how boring we'd be? Like, I'm waiting for this yeah. giant book to be shown of everything that's ever been done before, because apparently people keep talking about it, but I've never seen it. You know, like, everything's been done before. I'm like, where is this giant book of everything's been done before? Uh, you know, this is the only industry that people seem to, like, hang their hat on that with. But yeah, to that point, it's like, you know, that's, that's, the and that's, you know, 
even with ourselves and what you were saying with our videos, like, yeah, we do live in a social media world. Like we're not going to get away from social media. And then, and you and I specifically had this discussion, like it's hard for us to do a video on a, uh, a DVRT or ultimate sandbag deadlift because people have such a short attention span. They're just looking at, I can do that with Kelvin and Barbell. Why do I need a sandbag? Josh is just trying to sell me ultimate sandbag with that versus giving us an opportunity to talk about what makes it unique because visually they need to be captured first. So sometimes we do need to use the quote unquote sexy thing to draw them in, which is hard because that's not where they should start. And what they do is they go do the sexy thing. They go, well, that was terrible. So that system sucks and go, no, that was just to pull you in to start a conversation of where you should go and to allow us an opportunity to share with you what our belief system is, what makes us unique and where we're trying to take you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting now as, you know, as somebody that teaches for a few, you know, several groups now is what I didn't expect that people start asking me more and more about, like, uh, is how do I put the pieces together? Right. Um, how do I combine the things that I teach for and something that actually makes sense and going all the way back full circle to your word. It's like a philosophy, right? Like you have to, you have to start out the philosophy and your philosophy should be malleable, right? If you just said like, these are the commandments of my strength training philosophy, you're probably going to find out that something was wrong down the line. Um, but you also can't have everything <laughs> within your training philosophy, or it just is so random that nothing, it, it's hard to progress from being random. And no, absolutely. It's like, you get an example before of cooking. Like I like chocolate. I like pizza. I like peanut butter. I also like sushi. If I put that all in a pot, Hot together that doesn't taste very good <laughs> you know i don't know separately I might, they're very good you yeah. might do well with might, a new in restaurant Brooklyn. you yeah, might have a food might, might work in new york it might work in new york <laughs> but like i'm saying like you take those things independently or you put them together they don't work together and that, i think that's the key like people go well i do this and i do this and I do this, but that doesn't work together and that was the reason we wanted to develop a system is because people were doing that and i was doing that like i was pulling yeah. from different things not understanding that those things were contradicting one another and so they weren't actually making, they weren't working synergistically to make things better. I just had everything together in a pot, just so I could say I had the pot together. Cool. Hey, I would like to switch gears right now, because this is something, as somebody that's created the ultimate sandbag as it is, this is a unique opportunity, whether or not you're potentially thinking about, this is to the audience, thinking about making a fitness implement or any sort of product. What was your sort of initial, yeah, what was, what was your sort of (laughs) initial process of having an idea and taking it to like, say your first prototype? Like, how did that work out? What was, what was the process on that? You know, as you've probably heard the story before, I'll just say it for the audience. Like basically I did have those army duffel bags and, um, at first I thought it was really cool. It was really hard. And of course, you know, I definitely being, you know, the guy that like thinks hard means good. Um, I was like, oh, this is awesome. But I was also frustrated because you know, as, I, as I applied to clients, after that initial shock value goes away, and I think that happens to a lot of people with new equipment in general, I was just trying to use those duffel bags like a barbell alternative. So we were deadlifting, we were cleaning, we were pressing, we were rowing, we were squatting. So I wasn't using it in a unique manner. And so what ended up happening is I almost ditched the whole idea because I wasn't looking this this whole business and this whole journey has been happening organically i was just looking for something for me in my gym mm-hmm. and my buddy looked at me and goes like well if you were to make a sandbag what would you make and i'm like oh, i'd probably do this i'd probably do that and he's like oh, you know i th- i think i know a guy there's always that guy right the guy that knows a guy <laughs> um so he actually knew a boat cover uh company in chicago he's like oh let me 
let me see if they can do it. So, you know, a couple days later, I get this weird call and the guy's like, yeah, I've been talking to your buddy Nick and about why he told me this. I'm like, I think I can do this. So like, he's asking me all these questions I didn't know the answers to because I didn't know anything about manufacturing, materials, anything. I go, yeah, sounds good. Put one in the mail to me, a guy, I'm like, this is so cool. I'm like, it's your, it's like, a, you know, I, I don't have, I only have furry kids. I don't have like the human kids, but it was like having your kid born. It was like, oh my God, look at this, you know? Um, and so my buddy goes, I want one. So I called out the guy. I'm like, hey, can you get make another one? Because my buddy wants one too. And it was when he actually called me and was like, hey, I have a friend who wants one too. I'm like, huh, people actually seem to like this. But I made so many mistakes in that process. Like it didn't all of a sudden become a smash hit from there. It was a lot of growing pains, a lot of mistakes being made because I, at that time I didn't have this system. And yeah, initially I did go with this as hey, like, this is just cool. And look at all the cool things you can do with this. And there was that element of like, yeah, yeah, there were some people that were buying into it, but I didn't give it much value. And I didn't know where it could go because there wasn't, like I said, this infamous book of like everything that's been done before. Yeah. Like I found everything I could on the sandbags and it wasn't very extensive because no one actually tried to develop a tool, a sandbag specifically for fitness and take advantage of the unique attributes that sandbags provide and use it in a way that wasn't just like a barbell. And so that's the hardest part in trying to change the way people see it because I I think as human beings, it's natural for us to try to always put things in the context of things we already know. And so to get people to think like, oh, there's a whole different world by using this, that it's, it takes a little time for people to really grasp that. And it's still a challenge even to this day. So you had started manufacturing the bags before sort of the system was fully in place. Is that what you said? Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I mean, I didn't realize that. And, yeah. Yeah. Because, well, the system really started just working with our clients. Well, I had my training facility at the time and like, Hey, you know, let's try this. So let's do this. And because again, like I, you know, I honestly have, you know, Steve knows I'm kind of a junkie with these things. Like I found, I got every book I could possibly find on sandbags. There was always like five pages here and there. There was never like an encompassing book. I think Iron Mind had the biggest book. It was like 30 pages. And it was like some interesting ideas, but there wasn't a system in place. There wasn't you know, what are the principles of sandbag training? What are the concepts you need to adhere to? How do you add progressions? Because one of the biggest problems that people have is they go, well, how do I make this a little bit heavier? I'm like, well, how do you make a kettlebell a little bit heavier? Um, <laughs> same thing. Yeah. yeah, there's other ways. And, and when, you, when you start actually not seeing those things as limitations, but opportunities, you actually start to see a whole window open of training that you probably neglected and actually allowed you to train so much better and smarter than you were before because if you only focus on how do I make this a little heavier you become so limited in what you can do with your programs yeah it's interesting I just the the and and it in that those early sort of you know those early ultimate sandbags did they have the handles in all the positions did they only have a couple of handles so it was pretty innovative at the time we had the neutral grip handles and we had i had it as two suitcase handles on each end so i had the idea of doing farmer's walks with them okay uh and and so and a lot of people again we didn't have snatch grip handles on yet uh, and largely just because i didn't know where we could go with things and a lot of people get confused as you well know like they grab the snatch grip handles uh sorry about that they grab snatch grip handles like a bar and i don't blame people they grab it like a barbell and the reason for the neutral grip was it was a better shoulder position for people to be in to do most of their lifts. As you've heard me joke about a lot of times, like you can't bend a bar to get in that neutral shoulder position. Uh, so, you know, if we had the advantage of developing something, we could make 
solve a lot of the problems that we saw. It was like, let's do that. So yeah, those early handles and what like, but everything from like where the handles were placed to how long they should be to how wide they should be to the materials used. That was all a process and a journey I was going to go on that had some really rough times and some really good times uh, along the way. Yeah, I, I'll say this for the listeners. If you're wondering if you're using the right handles or not, uh, just think the neutral grip handles most of the time unless the exercise says snatching. Now, that's not exclusive, but you're going to save yourself the yeah. headache. Think neutral grip more often than not. Um, well, what's been very cool, which is why it sort of surprises me, is just, you know, so I came in, I'm sure there were many iterations before the Ultimate Sandbags that I came in, but I remember when, you know, I, my, early uh, my early bags were the all-cloth handle, and I remember you bringing mm-hmm. in one of the first rubber handle prototypes to, uh, you know, it was, it was the lift cert at the time. Before it was DVRT, it was lift, and it was at peak performance, and um, being like, oh, wow, check out these handles. And then for better, I mean, it's ultimately for better. So, like, I'm going to give you a little bit of shit right now, but it's all been for everyone's benefit. Is I remember being like, I just bought three bags. Holy crap, they're out of date. I just bought some new bags. Holy crap, they're out of date. And, like, literally right now I have some, you know, as a, as a master instructor, folks, some of our bags that they now are, they're the best they've ever been, and they're staying how they are. So you don't have to worry about buying something and it getting swapped out. They've been how they have been now for, for a few years. But, you know, I don't have – all of mine don't have the logos on them, and now I need to get the logos on them for, uh, for when I take <laughs> your OCD. But it's, it's like, I'll be honest, like I see the differences in the quality. I see the, you know, just in terms of where those positions are. And, you know, I remember when the DVRT clean and push press thing came out, I had an older Burley and I hadn't even realized that a new Burley was created. So I had cloth handles where the webbing intersected, you know, into the bag right under your knuckles. So not only was the dimension of my ultimate sandbag completely off, I was dealing with cloth handles and then I was cheese grating my knuckles. So just those changes you've made over the years is something that I've always actually respected you about you because I would imagine as as manufacturing something, it's easier to keep it the same um, and just try to make excuses for why it's better um, versus continually pushing the envelope on that. And I think that's cool, even though like, you know, I think my mom has one last, one of those early powers left and everything else, uh, has met the graveyard at this point, <laughs> but I yeah. think it's cool. And then how did, when did you think you found like sort of the sweet spot now? Cause we have had pretty consistent bags for a couple of years now, maybe, maybe three years now. And the introduction of the force bag was really the, the, the only sort of addition to the family over the last few years. How do you feel about like the current state? What was the moment that made you feel like, all right, we're, we're good now? When I lost that last bit of hair. No, um, no, <laughs> we, 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 I think that what people don't understand a lot of things and, and I, you, I wouldn't expect anyone to understand unless you're in the process, you know, um, quick side story, you know, probably four or five years ago, we got to sit down with Randy Hedrick, who's the owner of TRX or the creator of TRX. And we, shot the shit for like three or four hours because there's very few people that have gone through that journey. He showed us his like very first TRX and, 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 and like, unless you go through the process, you don't know what goes into it. And so like, we always, we always funded the bags and the development, our inventory ourselves. So when we first started, like, you know, the idea of, 
of producing something and taking inventory of something that you had to then sell was really overwhelming because I had my gym and then I had this now extra cost. And like our inventory was always kept really low um, because I couldn't afford to have like multiple things going on. And I had to look like how much are people willing to pay for a sandbag that's designed? Like, you know, there is a, a ceiling. Um, you know, we used to joke that, listen, I can make this bomb proof, but you won't pay $400 for a sandbag. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we had to find that medium. You, you mentioned the handles and the handles came about because literally I was at a conference and someone came up to me in the early years. He's like, Hey, you know, Josh, I really love your ultimate sandbags. Um, I run a boot camp, have a bunch of them, but um, it's just really hard because my ladies like the handles to dig in their hands. It's really uncomfortable. So it's hard for me to use them. I want to use them, but it's just hard. And I said, Oh man, that, that really does suck. Here's someone who is enthusiastic about when to use this, but he has a real obstacle. Like if your clients don't like something, it's hard enough to get them to want to train without them hating the process. So I went to our manufacturer. I'm like, well, what can we do with this? What's the option? He's like, well, you can do this, but it's going to add this much cost to your product. And I'm like, wow, like that's a lot. And I'm like, but the choice had to be made that now I had a voice to the fact that, you know, we've always been adamant that we don't want people to buy our product. We want them to use it. Uh, that, you know, if we got people to buy this, but they didn't use it, it didn't benefit anyone. So if we, we always wanted to try and enhance the consumer experience and the coach experience. So it's like, oh, wow, if we put rubber handles on here, yeah, it's going to reduce our margins. It's going to cut things a little closer, but more people will buy them. They'll have a better experience and they'll want to get more of them. So it's worth it because at the heart, we're coaches ourselves and we want to have, you know, the equipment that we would want to use ourselves. So it, it, it seems like that. And so I think, you know, going through that process, it's sort of like training too. You don't know what's available to you, like go to different manufacturers. As we went to different manufacturers over the years, like, oh, we didn't know this was available to us. Oh, look, we can do this. Oh, if we do this, it raises the cost and that. Like, I remember one year I was at a, 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 a NC, uh, North Carolina State University for a conference. I get this frantic call from my assistant at the time before Jessica was around. And she's like, oh my God, Josh, we're getting, we're getting all these like, bags broken like people are calling in their bag broke the bag broke i'm like what the hell called up the manufacturer he says well you know i saw that this thread was like 10 cents cheaper so i changed the thread for you <laughs> and it wasn't as durable of a thread so it kept breaking and we couldn't replace them with new bags because all the bags were made with those uh oh, wow. so you know yeah it's, it's little things like that and then it's like oh well i'll tell you what like you know and the whole made in America thing is kind of BS for a lot of people. I don't know if people know that. Like to be made in America, you just have to have it assembled, the percentage assembled in America. Like most of the companies that get stuff made in America, they get stuff from overseas and they just put together in the US. So for example, like our handles, I remember they were being assembled in the US. We had a, a very good manufacturer at the time in Pennsylvania, but they needed the handles from overseas and the boat got stuck on the seas. So they couldn't make anywhere else in the same so they had no handles. I remember so, that. Yeah. I actually remember waiting for some, for some, having ordered some of the ultimate sandbags for that and just tell me about that. Yeah. And so it's, there's all these little issues. So when people go, oh, it's easy to change that and this, it's like, it's, it's not so much because then you got production lines and you got, you know, all these other dynamics. So to answer your question, I, I would say, you know, we started working with our current manufacturer about, I want to say it's been about four or five years ago. And it was hard because I mean, again, the first thing that happened, like they sent us a sample um, of our bag to make sure we approved it. It's like, oh, I want to change this and that. And like a week later, I kid you not, someone emailed me. There was a there was a picture of our sample 
bag on a Canadian website being sold. So the, the manufacturer was trying to sell our design to somebody else. So there's all these little dynamics. Um, but you know, one thing I tell people is when you innovate something or you create something, you know the whys of everything. Like, yeah. We know exactly why the handles are the length they are. We know exactly why they are the width they are. We know exactly why the materials are that we're using. And it's, hey, if you, if you want to go out and want to test other sandbags, that's fine. That's fine. It's fine. But I go ask the company why they do some of these things. If they, they probably can't tell you because everybody has copied or tried to copy what we do in one form or another. They may not use the same materials. They may not use the same, you know, length of handles, but the, the overall design kind of looks similar. Like people just think we slapped a bat, uh, handles on the bag. But for example, I had uh, someone sent me uh, a video on Instagram of someone using a different sandbag and they're like, that form doesn't look right. What doesn't look right? I go, the handles are too close so he can't press it in a good position. When he cleans it, his fists are almost touching together. That's not a good position to press overhead with. You wouldn't do that anything else. He goes, oh, I'll go, why would they make a sandbag like that? I go, because they're not creating, they're copying. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's one of those things like, and I don't blame the consumer because like, how is a consumer supposed to know what makes for a good sandbag? Like, how the heck would they know that? Uh, so and that's what we tried to do. But I, of course, there's going to be some skepticism that we're just trying to sell you ours. We are because there's a saying in manufacturing, you buy cheap, you buy twice. We're trying to get people to maximize their investment and trying to have the best experience possible. Well, I, I say this at certs, and you're being too nice. Uh, listeners, if you're thinking about getting a sandbag, don't try another one. Don't be a dick. Don't try another one. It's, you can't go back in time and find the first creator of the kettlebell and, you know, only buy that kettlebell, the first creator of a kettlebell. You can't go to Mother Russia and figure that out. But in terms of all of these knockoffs that are happening and then the real Ultimate Sandbag product, this is the guy you're hearing in your headphones right now or on your laptop. Like, support him for doing it. If I could find whoever created the first kettlebell and they were priced very reasonably, as the ultimate sandbag is, the dollar value, I would pay more for the nicer one, too, to be honest. Um, show them some love, it's as opposed to, like, getting the cheaper one. You know, it's a, it's a different thing when you're looking at barbells and kettlebells. I know which one I think are the best. I still think Dragon Door kettlebells are the best not just because i work for, for them but because before i work for them that those are the ones i bought and it's the same thing with the ultimate sandbag so uh don't try other ones <laughs> just buy josh's ultimate sandbags ultimate sandbag training.com i see another right. commercial i appreciate that <laughs> uh, i said that honestly but I, mean, to what, I, I know what you're saying you're being very genuine and i appreciate it but it's just you know, uh, one thing we always do is we take very hard that like people are spending their hard-earned money and we want them to have the best experience possible. And, you know, our biggest fear is not someone using another sandbag. It's that they'll use another sandbag, have a bad experience, and write off the whole yeah. uh, idea of using sandbags and never give us a chance to show them that it can be something great. Um, you know, and that's why we have the warranties and that's why we have the 30-day, you know, no-risk stuff. But, again, we don't want people doing the sandbags. We want them using it in the way we're weighing out because, because we think that gives people an exceptional experience and result. And that's ultimate. We're not trying to get people to use sandbags. We're trying to get them a result. We're trying to listen to what they think is important and try to show them how easy it is for them to achieve it. Yeah, and, and James and I uh, were talking about this a little in the last episode, and I was actually just meeting with a friend at Brooklyn Health and Performance, and we were talking about you know DVRT and Ultimate Sandbags. And it, it, listeners, if you haven't tried the system or you know don't know much about it, 
the the team Josh leading it does have put out more actual quality information in in the world of social media and YouTube University than pretty much any else in the world that I've seen. So you can actually start to get some ideas of the foundations until you can get taken either an online course or come to a workshop or a certification. Um, but what's very cool in the program right now is I think we've seen uh, rewards in terms of the, the system really coalescing and getting attention through your years of, you know, pushing it and driving it and progressing it and promoting it as well as other people catching on. So, you know, I know it performed better in the last few years, like suddenly, you know, Dan John's mentioning it, Mike Boyle's mentioning it, Greg Cook's mentioning it. There's this heightened awareness that it, it, it is becoming a part of the, the bigger fitness scene as opposed to being viewed as some sort of niche item or something or some hardcore item that these things are you know, it, it, I'll take it myself for this for myself. So at one of the leadership meetings that we had one year, they were talking about the core bag, which is our lightest ultimate sandbag. And I was like, we don't need a lighter bag. People don't need to spend money on this lighter, smaller bag. And the core bag may be my favorite <laughs> ultimate sandbag right now. Having gone through the restoration program, um, I use it all the time not just on the people I train, but also on myself. Like it is the most probably cost-effective bang for your buck, ultimate sandbag um, that you can find a use for with anybody. And I think that's cool. That's how it's progressed. And I also think it's very cool how, you know, you've taken the elements and grown them from the correctives course, from the resilience course into what restoration is right now, which Having just taught the, the the newest, latest, greatest version of the DVRT workshop, which is somewhat of a greatest hits format, is seeing how well that blends in with everything. So between, you know, the ultimate sandbags themselves really dialing in terms of their manufacturing, but more importantly also just the systems really coming in together and then the awareness on top of it. It's been a really cool time to be a part of this, you know, community and family of, you know, the DVRT world, but also of the leadership team in terms of how much work so many people are putting out. I appreciate it, Steve. I mean, yeah, we always, you know, you asked about the manufacturing and, and the, 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 the use of it has always dictated the manufacturing. Uh, so I was mentioning with the boutique yeah. also, you know, like, you know, for example, how big should a sandbag be? Like that was something early on, like how much did it weigh? You know, what, that changes. One thing you know very well, and a lot of people, as you know, don't sort of take this account, is dimension plays a huge role. Yep. And, you know, one thing I always tell people is, like, you'll never outgrow any of the bags. The way you use it, may just change over time. Like, if you have a five-pound dumbbell, you may be like, ah, I don't use that anymore. I have outgrown that. With our bags, you'll just use it differently. So it's always, like, form and function work together. You know, it's like, what, what are you trying to accomplish with it? So when people ask us, so, like, what bag should I get, you know, they're expecting me to just to stay a weight. But it's actually a size you know, issue too. So it's, you know, it's one of those things like there's more considerations to go in, which can overwhelm people. But like you said, it's not really that complicated. Just thinking slightly differently. If you just get out of the context of thinking about a barbell all the time, you'll see that these things are very easy because ultimately what we're asking people to do is think about how do you hold the weight when you lift? How do you position your body when you lift? And which direction do you move? Uh, and, what, and if you put in that context, it doesn't sound that complicated, but because most programs don't do that, it is asking for people to think a lot more 
but it becomes seamless and easy. One of the things I like about our system, I tell people like, we're not trying to make things more complicated. We're trying to make them easier. And if you see like what, how easy it is to make something just slightly more challenging or slightly easier without having to buy another implement, that's way better. I was, I run the joke that we're like, we're the worst business in the world because we're trying to show you how to do more with less, uh, yeah. even with our own equipment. Like, uh, yeah, there was, um, I'm forgetting which DVRT course it was, but there was a conversation about, you know, um, how, how many ultimate sandbags would we buy? How, how much money would that cost? And, you know, uh, again, we, we talk about not always just loading onto a bar, not that we're against barbell lifting, but, uh, it is, doesn't need to be the end goal of it. But also if you're a facility owner, especially when real estate is, is prime, like in New York, uh, you know, the cost of a barbell rack and a couple of barbells and a whole lot of plates is, is very high. And also requires a lot of space where, you know, comparatively speaking, you know, getting a, a, a couple or a few sets of ultimate sandbags is really low cost, takes up much less space and allows you a lot more versatility and a lot more flexibility if you need to change things around your space. Uh, and I think those are one of those like beautiful lost arts too, uh, that is an added bonus. And I'm saying that as, as somebody who I, I don't have a facility, you know, Fury Industries is a training room in my room and it's like my one of my fa- most favorite places on earth. And it, cause it's just a small eight by 10 training floor. And I've got a bunch of ultimate sandbags, a bunch of kettlebells, a pull up bar and a TRX and, you know, Indian clubs and bands and some other knickknacks. But it's this idea that we don't need a ton of this other stuff when we put it in the perspective of the big picture, because generally speaking, everybody's well, thinking, I have to have the barbell on the racks and all of this stuff. And then we're like, you know, the ultimate sandbag or the kettlebells are the extra expense. Well, it's funny you say that because, I mean, I've gotten myself in, I won't say trouble, but like, I, I could see people like the wheels really turning and like they're almost getting upset because they realize they've been sold a bad bill of goods, if you will. Like I, I always tell the story, like I've made more mistakes than anybody. Like when I got my first facility, I bought my the first hand purchase was this beautiful squat rack. It was $2,500, probably most of my budget that I have for equipment. But I'm like, that's why I have to have, look how awesome this is. And then it would be years later until I realized like it was the worst investment I made. So Something I just want to sort of touch on that you said is like barbells aren't bad. And yeah, barbells aren't bad. So now let's talk about the, the conversation people really should be having is return on investment. So like when people go, for example, when people go like they ask me, well, how much is an ultimate sandbag? I'll say, well, depends on size, but I'll give them like, you know, like 60 to $100 depending on what you're looking at. Oh, that's expensive. I go, compared to what? Because, you know, for example, if you look at a barbell, if we break it down space-wise, more space, if you go, can you train in all three points of motion? No, you can't. How many, all, how many different body positions can you use? Not as many. How many load positions can you use? Not as many. The versus, the, actually, per expense, the, the barbell is probably the least efficient tool that we have in the gyms. But we forget our own history that the reason the barbell is there is that because most initial gyms were set up by powerlifters and Olympic lifters. So... Oh, they weren't set up by fitness mainstream people. So if you're looking at, and I know you know very well, the physical culture gym, they didn't have squat racks. They didn't have barbells. So that wasn't always the gym. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's the, it's, the more, it's the gym of the last about 50 to 60 years. And so it's funny. And so I think what keeps people from doing this stuff is they don't believe that lighter loads can, can uh, equate to equal results. But the research and practical experience shows you like, you know, my friend Alan Cosro goes like, you don't, you don't think a hundred pound barbell is heavy, but if I have a hundred pound bag sitting back in my car, you don't want to lift that. 
you know, <laughs> like, very we, we, we understand, we understand there's a difference, but we also have a hard time with that difference too, because we're, we get invested in these different sort of sound bites as well as that we talked about before. Yeah. It's also, there's a flexibility, you know, now that a lot of my business is an independent trainer, uh, you know, I do a couple of in-homes or I travel around. Um, it's easy to have somebody or if I, on my online training program to buy like one ultimate sandbag, not make it a huge, uh, addition. And then I can train them the way I would train somebody in person versus like, you know, just put a barbell behind your couch and <laughs> just try to hide it when game of th- the next season of game of Thrones is on. It's just having those things to lay into it too. Like from a process and from a business model, where does that go? But of course, at, at the end of the day, you have to believe in the system. And I think what happens with DVRT is once people actually open their, their minds up to it and their eyes and get the hands on the, on the, on the bags, it goes a long way to, for that buy-in. No, absolutely. Like you said, I mean, there's a reason we're now, I mean, I'm going to do a private cert for a hospital now. Like we're getting into clinical settings more and more, you know, you've been with me over the Marines and some military projects. We've had professional sports teams. They're not into sandbags. They're into solutions. And I always say like, we we want to be a solution to people. You tell me what your problem is and we're going to show you how to solve it. And we're going to come at you a little differently depending upon, you know, what is like, uh, uh, you know, Pavel was one of my big mentors and inspirations for a long time. And there's very few things I would say I really disagree with him on. But I remember him telling the story that he said, well, someone asked him, you know, they want to lose fat. What they should they do? He said deadlift. And he's like, someone said they want to gain muscle. What should they do? They should deadlift. And, you know, you could see where this is going. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, the, the, that, 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 that's not true. Because <laughs> we all have very individual abilities, goals, backgrounds, you know, limitations. And when we think in such a limited manner, we're going to get limited results. So we're not trying to get, like I said, I keep going back to the tool is only as powerful as the craftsman behind it. So you can have an ultimate sandbag. If you don't know what to do with it, it's not a very powerful tool, just like a kettlebell or any other tool isn't unless you have the know-how that goes behind it. Yeah, very, very true. Um, we're heading towards the longest episode of the Coach Fury podcast ever. I could really talk to like, uh, guys, I'm just going to say this. So I, I, you know, I'm very uh, stoked to call Josh a friend. We've been, you know, uh, he's certainly been a huge mentor of mine. I could literally still get inspired by this guy on the minute um, and talk to him for hours. So what I'm going to do now is we're going to switch gears because what I think uh, you may or may not know if you don't follow him is he's also one of the fellow DVRT comic book nerds. Um, What'd you think of Ragnarok? You know, I'll, I'll say that I'll preface all this. Like I'm not definitely not as hardcore as you and James are as far as like the, like uh, knowing the, the specific like comic book side of things. I, I know the backside of the comic book with Thor or with Ragnarok. Yeah. I thought it was, I th- you know, my measure is can my wife get into it? And she thought it was a lot of fun because I mean, if you make something for like you were talking about with training the one percenters, yeah, you know, you'll probably make the one percenters happy, but you'll miss the main yeah. audience sort of getting into this whole genre. So yeah, I realize there's like some interpretations and freedom used and not everything was accurate, but I thought it stayed true to the premise of what it was supposed to be. And I thought it invoked a lot more personality than maybe some of those other movies. Am I wrong? No, I think you're right. I actually, I'm going to be honest. I, I never was a, a huge reader of Thor and I went through rounds when like, you know, Kulk would have a good run. I think, you know, for most of us as comic book readers um, that actually read the books over the decades, like, you know, the, you could read a book for like five years and it has a pretty decent run and then it starts to get a little like, eh, and you just realize you're spending money on it. And then you come back when it picks up again. And that was sort of Hulk for me. So I did read all the planet Hulk stuff, which this is sort of like uh 
a mix up, a mashup of Planet Hulk right. and, and, you know, the Ragnarok storyline. Uh, the sense of humor of it is, for this one is something that, like, I really love that flight of the Concords, what we do in the shadows, sense of humor on it. But it did throw me for a minute. Like, I wasn't expecting it to be that silly. But I'm also trying to now, not just as a. Uh, I've always been pretty good to take the film major out of me and enjoy like a, you know, a big movie um, to take the, you know, what was that guy from the Simpsons? Like worst episode ever guy, like to not be that guy that used to work at a comic book shop or a video store. Cause I've had all those wonderfully nerdy jobs uh, and just to try to enjoy it. Now I have to like, so I saw it with my kids and it's to step back and see how much they're enjoying it. So some of the deeper movies my kids like enjoy, but they don't love. And then Thor, they loved it. So if they can give it a nine out of 10 out of however many of these movies there are now, um, you know, I think that's a big win, but this director is really good. Um, uh, I, I will murder his name if I try to say it. Uh, I think it's like Taikai or something like that. I have to. Yeah. I apologize for anybody. I don't want to offend anybody by how I would pronounce his name, but on Amazon prime, there's a movie called what we do in the shadows that he directed. Um, he also has a great one. What, uh, hunt for the wilder people, but definitely see what we do in the shadows it is an amazing sort of spinal tap best look at vampires and it's 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 just amazingly funny um but yeah i mean and then i'm 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 really looking forward we're getting closer and closer finally to uh avengers infinity war i was sort of hoping we get a trailer on this one yeah i think i think that's coming i I think you know that they're playing close to the vest i think that you know black panther's kind of a one they don't know how to gauge yet. It's funny watching Jessica watch that one. She goes, I think that's that one's too over the top. Um, but it's, I think it is like, you do have to make a concession. I mean, obviously movies are a business. Um, <laughs> you want to get the mainstream involved. And like you said, you, you, in Thor, you mashed a couple of different storylines in one, right? Uh, which the average person wouldn't know. Like they don't know Planet Hulk and all that. So yeah. I think it was a good way of like trying to get, like you said, you know, that, that if, I guess the, my hope would be if I was a big comic book fan, it's like if I can get the mainstream or the new generation interested in going to look at the comics, then it's a win. You know, yeah. uh, you know what I mean? Because it's a dying medium in a lot of different ways. Print and overall is. I, I wrote a po- post. So I went to New York Comic Con and literally I've only missed com- <laughs> the only Comic Cons except for the first one that I've missed were because of you uh, <laughs> and being at the, you know, the Master Trainer Summit two years in a row happened to be on it. And this apparently was the biggest one ever. Uh, they literally spread into the Garden and Hammerstein Ballroom, to, uh, which is not close to the Javits Center. It's not incredibly far. Um, so over 200 and something thousand people came to New York to soak up all this stuff. Now, it would be amazing if everyone went home and would visit their local comic book store a little bit more often and actually buy the books there and just think of how cool these scenes would be. Because uh, it is a dying breed and I miss it. Uh, more and more I lament this, this art of being able to go into a part of the city or in a town or a strip mall and go to the local record store and go to the local video store and just find things that you don't find the same way that like suggest, you know, these um, algorithms you have on Spotify or iTunes, do, uh, iTunes do. So go support your local comic book store. 
Um, some of my greatest memories and like defining moments of a kid are just the things that I bought at comic book stores and, you know, having worked at it, seeing that change. And I know, uh, some of you are like, I, you know, I was wondering if Fury was really that nerdy and geeky. And it's like, yeah, I am. It's like, I used to, I remember my, my, my friend, Mike, who I trained came in with a book. Do you remember the Mago superhero dolls? I know I'm a little oh, older. Really? Really? They were like, they, they were like more like Barbie dolls, but like superheroes. Yeah. So they had cloth clothing and they were, you know not incredibly sturdy made, but they were like, you know, sort of like GI Joe dolls, I should say like the original GI Joe dolls with, with cloth clothing. And I remember like being afraid to get shots as a little kid. And my mom would say, Hey, we'll go to heroes world comics, you know, which was, you know, a mile from where I grew up. And I would get like one of these mega dolls after getting a shot or something. And, you know, going into actually, you know, reading books and then getting into movies and how bad the, you know, superhero movies were of that age it's like kind of amazing what marvel's done you know even with thor the patience that they've taken of taking two like really big characters like thor and the hulk like finally in avengers we have a hulk that people generally love and then you know gone for two years because civil war had everybody but them and the patience that they're seeing that unfortunately i don't think we're you know i think dc is proving to be rushing a little too much i mean i'm hoping i'll enjoy justice league but certainly Batman versus Superman was a disappointment, although I dug Wonder Woman. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of with you. It's like for the first time we have this universe of these heroes that have depth now. You know, Iron Man's going back 2007, they started building towards the Avengers. And Thanos, uh, sort of this idea of the Infinity Gauntlet, you know, uh, these Infinity Gems, started in the third movie. It was Captain America First Avengers, where you saw the first one of these things happen. How many here Marvel movies have there been now? And we still haven't had that fight. So it's so cool to spend basically a decade or so or eight years building up to this movie, whereas nobody else has the patience to do that. Where, where does that happen? Well, I mean, really quick, I'll tell you a funny story and then maybe like something that would be what worth tying it all into. So someone was telling me a story about they had, uh, his son was about seven and his son goes over to his buddy's house and then the buddy's house he goes to the dad still gets a newspaper and he still gets the sunday newspaper so he's over there and the son goes what's that he goes it's the newspaper and you know the, the he goes well how'd it get here and he goes someone delivered it and he's like who like the whole process of like, <laughs> like a kid on their bike like was so abnormal to this you know young man of like someone pays to throw this paper onto your <laughs> it seems so archaic and weird like and you think about it now like oh wait I just ordered a movie it pops up on my TV but then the other thing I was thinking about like we have a neighbor and they have a about a seven year old girl and she saw the I don't know if she, I think she saw the Wonder Woman movie but she got all into it. And like, what a kind of a cool thing. Like you can be like the stringent purist about things and we all tend to be about certain things we love, but you know, what a great thing to have a, you know, young ladies having a role model, whether it's real or not, but someone who can be positive that they show they can be empowering and they can be something more than just a character. And they can, you know, in a day and age where there's so much negativity and things are scandalous, like something kind of pure and so good for kids to look up to. It's, it's kind of a fun thing. Like you can definitely or nitpick i'm sure some of the accuracies of things but i think the overall message that they've been able to convey with it's generally pretty good yeah i think it's 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 an interesting thing from comic books too because you know look clearly both for men and women like everyone is like hyper muscular and sexualized in a comic book right so it's like you know you have all these muscular asses and the big boobs on the females and you have all these raging muscles on all the dudes um but i know as a reader i never viewed 
forgot who I was talking about this where I never viewed the female superheroes as anything less than the male superheroes, right? So Storm from the X-Men is a total badass. Now, I was, I was more of a Marvel person than a, than, a, than a DC. So Wonder Woman really wasn't my jam. But like Storm was a badass. Rogue was a badass. And I was never like they're lesser or under. And I don't know why... Or if it's a reality that we can't finally get a Black Widow movie, for example, solo story, it's kind of sad, you know? And I know there's been talk about it, and we're finally going to get a, a, a Captain Marvel movie, which is, you know, about time on the Marvel front. But I don't know, you know, it, it's great that Wonder Woman hit on so many levels because I think for comic book fans, uh, long-term, like, that was never, like, an issue. Like, I'll come and see a movie about any cool hero, regardless of gender or alien race right like it's literally open-ended and i think finally we're at this realm where that'll happen and i, I think there's a, i don't know if it's a rumor going around but i know there's like a, a potential black widow um team up movie maybe in the works but i don't know if that's just like an idea they're trying to get off the off the floor but yeah like i remember like some of my friends that were ninjas were like yeah i cried they, they cried at wonder woman because they finally had this hero happening you know, and uh, that that was cool. I think Black Panthers of the similar importance. Yeah, I, I think Black so. Panther is the same. You know, yeah. And I, think, need, I mean, it goes ties into fitness. People need to see someone like themselves. Totally, and you know, I, there was one thing. You know, I, I mentioned Larrabee on this on this podcast a lot because I'm just you know, like, look, if you're going to talk about a fitness podcast, Kevin's where it's at, right? Fitcast is where it's at. I'm I'm not even remotely trying to be the Fitcast. Um, about when I it was, it, he made a post about into you know fitness summits having ninety nine percent. It wasn't. This is a paraphrase. Too many male guests and not enough female speakers, right? And it was something that made me think about it because I I, I don't think about it that way. I'm I'm always like you know I I never think like hey this like the people that I looked up to were male dominated. And I thought about it, I was like well actually you know, a lot of them are in some way. So one of the goals of this podcast is there's either, it's either 50% male, female, or I think it actually, you might be adjusting this a little bit, Hankin. Um, I'm on the females. You, you, you might, but. yeah. Um, you know, tuck it, <laughs> tuck it for a little bit. Let the, let the world picture that one right now. But like, I think I've actually, I may have had more female guests on. Um, at least up until this episode. And I just wish we could sort of like, regardless of, what that background is God just open up and like, stop being like, I don't know what our reach is. Right. I feel like we're worrying about our reach and our ego and just let, let's just go where quality's at. And there's quality like everywhere. I know in visual effects land and it's like, you know, women tend to have it harder too. There's just a lot of, of women didn't come in in the beginning of it. And now that seems to be changing as well, which is rad to see. And certainly black Panther's like, it's a killer comic book, or at least I, I, I got to amend for anybody Warren, when I talk about comic books, basically <laughs> seven years ago, when I decided to become a full-time trainer, I stopped collecting. Um, it was an expense. I was like a 20 to $50 a week habit guy. I couldn't afford it. So I I'm talking like back where some of these foundations were of like, you know, late, you know, 2000 to 10 is basically when I stopped collecting 2011. So black Panther was like a great book. He married Thor, uh, Storm, so I had to dig them. They were married. I don't know if they still are. They were married for a while. Cool book. I'm stoked to see a movie. Um, 
So I think but that's a, big a deal, good... especially in today's landscape, probably a pretty big deal. Completely, completely. Uh, I'm not going to lie, coming off the heels of this election, um, yeah. <laughs> where we, we not the Trump part, but like we had a pretty good on the Democratic side uh, just yesterday. We're recording this on November 8th. Like the Democratic Party turned out pretty well on this one, not to make it about sides, but you know, uh, it, it, it's good to have awareness. What, what was the. Um, the, the the senator in Virginia who signed the bill against mm-hmm. trans bathrooms was beaten by a trans woman. That is fantastic. <laughs> it just makes me like super happy because, uh, you know, this is a little bit of a tangent. When Trump was elected and, you know, a lot of people were like, don't worry about it. Just wait and see. And then we saw a lot of bad stuff start to happen. And then I know you were vocal on some ends of this. I know I was vocal on some ends of this. And I know a lot of people were sort of vocal pro him and wait and see until we started to see how bad things started to run. And a lot of people got quiet (laughs) on the other side. And it doesn't have to be a Democratic versus Republican. It has to be more of like human beings making better judgments, regardless of where you might lean on one side of the fence. And whether that's politics or your superhero taste, like I think we have to just be more open-minded across the board, but also fight for the things that we believe in and really just not like, uh, it goes back to like a lack of critical thinking sometimes. Like how we train and view fitness can be a lot like how we look at life in a lot of ways. No, absolutely. And I think one of the coolest things the superhero things have done is shown that, that superheroes aren't perfect. And I think that's people think they have to be perfect to do great things. And I think that we all know the reality of that. Yeah, I mean, I think I know that was one of the things that I related to about the, the Marvel Universe versus the DC Universe is they were all more flawed. Like, um, you know, Superman had his troubles. He lost his parents. His parents, expl- you know, his plane exploded. But for the most part, like, he's Superman. And then you have, you know, you know, X-Men clearly being my favorite comic book of all time. Wolverine being my favorite superhero of all time. Man, just like complete misfits, you know, hated by all, trying to find their place. Like, that's something that I can relate to better. And uh, I think somehow my little personal tribe of people that train with me, I think they find that little bit of outsiderness in them. Um, that they relate to in me as if, if you could see this podcast being recorded, I'm we're on a Skype thing. There's a wall of Godzilla toys behind my head. <laughs> um, I think that's cool. And, and, you know, I think the one nice thing about, we can talk about social media on a positive light is it's making it easier for us to find each other on the similar interests. Like I just, uh, met up with a buddy for the first time, uh, that runs a gym, Brooklyn health and performance. And the way that I, I officially met him is I saw through his social media thing that, he tagged our hometown of Levittown, Long Island. So he went to like basically one high school over from me. Wait, he's way younger than me. Uh, hey, Tom, I'm talking about you. Visit BHP. And we now, like his gym is now six blocks away from me. <laughs> and we have a lot of shared interests from going back in that day, not comic book related, but that's something like a social media can help you find your tribe now. And I think that's why we create content. It's just sometimes not directed at the right tribe. Um, wow, we kind of went full circle there on a lot of stuff. <laughs> we brought hey, all the way back, huh? Yeah, we did. We did. So it's time to wrap this up. So I'm going to let Josh say some final words. But first, um, guys, we launched a new DVRT workshop this year. Um, and there's a bunch of them that are going to be coming up, coming into the uh, later this year and into, into next year. And it's a really great format. And it's actually a, a lower cost version and I think has a lot of value for you if you like it, liking the things that we've been talking about. 
And I know if you visit ultimatesandbagtraining.com, you can find out where we're having the workshops. I know right out the gate, we have ones in Glendale, California, in Seattle, and in Wisconsin. So look up those. Um, we also have courses online and live workshops uh, and certifications as well, um, taught by Josh and some of the team, including myself. So keep an eye out for those. But Josh, is there any sort of uh, parting thoughts, uh, comments you'd like to lay on the group, the listeners? Well, I want to thank you for the opportunity to you know ramble for a long time. I, I'm sure I, I rambled longer than most people wanted to hear me. Um, but you know, I think it's just you know going back to just really going, being able to be brave enough to think independently, have your own filter system, to be willing to ask the question why, to get an answer that you can understand, not that one that just someone gives you, and being willing to think you know differently. You know that old Apple commercial about the renegades. I think speaks very true to this day where. You know, the people that are willing to think differently are the ones that actually change the world. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't have to be a monumental change. I always tell people, you know, they go, you know, they'll ask me like, oh, what's your purpose in life? And I go, you know, sometimes it's the simple things. Like I go, if my life is defined by being able to give these rescue animals a good home, I'm like, that's a pretty good life. So sometimes it's, you know, not thinking that you have to do all these grand things is doing the small things that make a big impact. Oh, awesome and, and very well said. Um, hey, Josh, can you tell the listeners to die mighty? <laughs> listeners, you definitely want to die mighty with Steve Hollander. <laughs> awesome. Furry. No, I had to get that in. Oh, <laughs> fix it. That's not one of my fetish categories. Coach Fury is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, before I officially wrap this up, uh, listeners, I do have to say, I, 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 I can't even like really equate how much I owe Josh for uh, not only what I know and how I'm, I'm, I'm able to use what he's taught me in, um, with the people that I train and, and with myself, but also just the opportunities that he's provided to be um, – like literally the first guy other than you, Josh, to teach a level one course. Like, you know, James and I talked about that and, you know, he assisted me on that and how like that was kind of huge. And, you know, being able to represent the brand and teach workshops and courses and how you share content. And I know I need to create more content, um, but hashtag two DVRT people back to back on the podcast. Um, uh, it's been amazing. Part of the reason why I got, you know, in, involved in the RKC in leadership is definitely through Josh, like, uh, Josh, you're just like, you know, uh, a, a dear friend and somebody, you know, I love dearly and uh, a mentor. So thank you for all you've been able to sort of like literally change my life, enhance my life. Thank you for that. Um, appreciate it, man. Right back at you. And, and the boss, <laughs> your wife, <laughs> Jessica, Jess, uh, we'll get her on the podcast. Jessica's <laughs> awesome. That would be an entertaining podcast. Yeah, we're, I'm going to try. I definitely <laughs> want her on here. Um, so listeners, thank you so much for checking it out. Again, you can visit uh, ultimatesandbagtraining.com to find out more information on, on Josh and the program and the system. Certainly follow him on Instagram and Facebook. I'll put those links up on my webpage. And, uh, you know, ultimatesandbagtraining.com. Visit coachfury.com um, for any information on me in terms of training or upcoming courses. And then finally, if you would like to become a patron of the Coach Fury podcast and, and donate like a buck or two or maybe a little more, uh, anything helps, please visit patreon.com slash coachfurypodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash coach fury podcast 
Um, and again, as always, special thanks to the FTW for the metal music at the beginning and end of the podcast. Those guys are friends and crush it. I'm going to have some live dates for them coming up to share. Um, Glenn Urieta, whose artwork continues to impress me and surprise me every time I have another guest on and I see those thumbnails, I'm blown away. And remember, go visit this uh, show that my wife and her friends are putting on. Uh, it's a fundraiser for a shelter, something that's very important for Josh and I. Um, it's bitingbacknyc.com. That's December 1st through the 3rd in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. Thank you, everybody. Have a good one. Until the next episode. The Coach Fury Podcast is created, owned, and produced by yours truly, Steve, Coach Fury Holliner for Fury Industries, LLC. Music provided by the FTW. Visit the ftw.nyc.com for band, album, tour, and merchandise information. And the artwork is created by Glenn Urieta. Visit glennurieta.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-U-R-I-E-T-A. Or on Instagram, at Glenn Urieta. Thanks, everyone.